five. We've been doing a study about revival through the Bible, just taking little bites off from different passages that deal with the subject matter. I thought maybe at one point we would try to lay it all out all at once, and um, that did not necessarily uh, seem like the best way to go, or maybe try to fit it all into one or two services, but those would have been awful big bites, so we've kind of decided to, to, uh, to divide, divide it up into smaller bites as we've taken uh, each reference individually. And so this may be one of the most popular passages on the subject of revival in all of the scriptures. You see it usually uh, printed in bulletins and put up on screens and things of that nature before and after revival. I hope that you've seen that revival is more than just one passage in the Scripture and that uh, it means more than just one thing. Uh, we'll see it here in Psalm chapter number 85 and verse number 1 once again. The Bible says in the first verse of Psalm chapter 85, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not? Revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would please guide and direct in the message tonight. Help us as we study this passage. Help me. Lord, I, I need it greatly. I pray that you would fill me, please, and use me. I pray that you would speak to the hearts of those that are in our kids' classes and in our teen class, or in our kids' class and our teens' class. I pray that you would meet with them and help them. Lord, I pray that you would revive us. We pray this as we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. You can be seated. There are two things that stand out to me in this passage. Now, we're going to go verse by verse through it, and it's only seven verses, so it won't, I don't believe, take us a lot of time. But uh, notice I said I, won't, I don't believe. Uh, but we'll, we'll see that there are multiple truths that can be gleaned from here. But as, as you read the passage, I believe there are two conflicting truths that are kind of the case for all of us. When we come to a place where we've been brought by God and His Holy Spirit to a place of repentance. and I, So, we're going to go verse by verse, but as we do so then, I want you to take note of kind of the bigger picture. And then I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about the bigger picture here. We see it in verse number 1. The Bible says, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, what is being said here in verse number 1? 
Israel had many times, as we have seen, uh, is often referred to around the subject of revival. Israel had often been in sin and walked away from God, actually even going after other gods. And God actually said with His own words a couple of times that they went a-whoring after other gods. And so Israel had, had given themselves to other gods and had also fallen into deep sin because of the worship of some of those gods. Some of the worship of those gods uh, that were, were uh, a part of, of uh, Canaan when Israel uh, was given the power by God to overtake the promised land, God told them, remember, that if they did not cast out all of the nations that were in that land, that what would happen was that eventually they would, if they didn't cast out all of the people, that they would then begin to worship their gods and their children would begin to worship their gods and that as their children were given in marriage to one another, that they would go a-whoring after other gods and that it would become a generational problem if they didn't get rid of all of the, 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 uh, the gods of the nations and get rid of the other nations in the promised land. So when Israel came in, they started off pretty strong, but eventually they stopped casting everybody out and left some there within the Canaan land and the promised land that God had given them. They left some of those nations there. When they did that and they left themselves exposed to the worldliness of the other nations and to the other gods of the other nations, they then began worshiping the other gods of those other nations. And that is one of the reasons why every Christian ought to be careful about how much of the world you expose your life to. Because the truth is still the same today. If you are allowing other things to, ex to be exposed to your uh, thinking and to your life from the world, little by little it will wear on you and you will begin to worship and be become a part of the same things that the world around you is. And can I say it is, it's not really possible to do it any other way. Because as long as we live in this flesh, as long as I live in this flesh, my flesh will always be attracted to the things that the flesh wants. So if I expose my flesh to worldly and fleshly things, I'm always going to struggle with my flesh. They didn't cast out all of the nations that were before them like God said. They didn't separate themselves from all the nations that went before them like God said that they should. And as a result, they continuously found themselves in sin and worshiping other gods. So God allowed them to do what? To go into captivity. Does anybody remember the first nation that, that brought Israel into captivity? They struggled with the Assyrians. They struggled with the Babylonians. They struggled with the Persians. Is everybody okay? And they struggled with many other nations in the book of Judges under whom they would become captive. In this passage in Psalm chapter 85, verse number 1 is a reference to the fact that God had been favorable unto them and delivered them from the captivity that they were in. Are you with me? And can I say that is certainly what revival is. A deliverance from the captivity of our own sin. Listen, when we get out into sin or when we follow after our flesh, if listen, whether we want to admit it or not, we can become captive to our own sin. 
we can become a prisoner of our own sin. The goal of sin is always to take you captive and rule your life. An old song used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Holy taking control. Sin will take you longer than you want to stay and sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. Some have said, give sin an inch, it'll take a mile. When we allow inroads for, for sin and for the world, we become captive to our own sin. Revival is God delivering us from the captivity of our sin. There can be deliverance from any sin that anybody deals with, and you don't have to be stuck with it. In order for us to be delivered, first of all, we have to acknowledge that we're captive. <laughs> Unfortunately, being taken captive by our sin is not as visibly obvious as being literally taken captive as a nation. You can see the enemy when they drag you out of your homes and make you slaves. But we don't always see the enemy when it is coming from within or when it is a part of our own lives. There can be deliverance if we acknowledge our own captivity. I've used this story before. But for years, I was captive to my own bitterness towards people who, can I say, had really done some things that were kind of worthy of being bitter over. Sometimes we think deliverance from bitterness is only possible when something hasn't really been done to you. It's <laughs> kind of how I looked at it, I think. But the truth is, I didn't even know until I sat in a service under Dr. Keith Gomez, my freshman year of Bible college, that for years I had been captive to bitterness. I had no clue. Until... He got about halfway through that message and I was, I was not enjoying it and thinking, man, I wish, I wish all the people in, uh, or a bunch of them anyway, from that church in, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, boy, I wish a whole bunch of them could be here to hear this message because they really need it. And the longer he went, the more frustrated I got that they weren't there. And then about halfway through that message, he said, and just in case you don't think you're bitter, let me give you some of the signs from the Scriptures of bitterness. And when he said that, something inside of me, of course we all know what it was, said maybe you ought to listen to this part. And as he went through the signs of bitterness, I had all of them. And then he continued on with his message, and I fell under deep conviction. And when it was revealed to me that I was captive to my own sin, captive to my own bitterness, I could finally acknowledge it and be delivered from it. There's no deliverance unless there's acknowledgement. I had to admit I had a problem. There's no deliverance from addictions unless they are first acknowledged. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in an AA meeting or some other 
local organization or whether you're sitting in a church service, they're going to force you to acknowledge that you have a problem. There can be no deliverance without acknowledgement of your captivity. Secondly, there can be deliverance, number one, if we acknowledge our sin, or excuse me, if we acknowledge our captivity. Secondly, there can be deliverance if it is labeled properly. Remember when the children of Israel forgot that while they were out there in the wilderness and they were being fed by God and given water by God? Remember when they were out there and they started saying, Oh, if we had only been able to stay in Egypt where we were able to eat leeks and garlics. Except they seem to have forgotten how that they were under such heavy servitude that they were dying from the labor. Hello? <laughs> and that Moses, after God got a hold of his heart, felt so burdened for the heaviness of their servitude that he actually smote a man who was being too hard on one of the Jewish people and then had to hide the body. He was so burdened as a man who was raised as an Egyptian for his people about the heaviness that was placed upon them and about the affliction that was being placed upon them that he smote another man for it. Is everybody okay? But then they get out in the wilderness and the times get a little tough and they say, I wish we were back in Egypt where it was easier. <laughs> we can all be that way about our sin. We don't call it what it is. We don't label it properly. They didn't label the fact that they were in captivity in Egypt. And they got confused about what was really better for them. It was better for them to be free from the world and free from their sin and to have the provision of God than it was for them to be living in Egypt under the bondage, under the captivity, under all of the worldly influence. It was better for them to be delivered, but while they were out there for a little while having some trials and troubles, they forgot what they had really been in and stopped labeling it correctly. And the reality is that sometimes we love to excuse where we are in our life and say it would have been better if and we don't label where we came from properly or we don't label our current sin properly and acknowledge what it is. Proper labeling of the problem is the only way to have deliverance. Sin is sin. Can I say this? If we excuse it as gossip but never call it sin, there will be no change. If we excuse it as a grudge but never call it bitterness, there will never be change. If we excuse our favorite show as a way to unwind after work but don't label it as lasciviousness and nudity and pervasive swearing... There won't be a change. Well, it's just how I unwind after work. 
There can be deliverance if it's labeled properly. We see here in verse number 1, the Bible says that God had been favorable unto their land and had brought back the captivity of Jacob. They had become captive to another nation because of their own sin and God delivered them from that captivity. Revival is deliverance from the captivity that you have put yourself in. Verse number 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. And here he says, stop and think. Selah. That word selah means stop and meditate on what was just said. Now we could certainly say that the word selah there is for the first two verses. No question we should stop and think on both of them. We should stop and meditate on all Scripture. But it is specifically planted at the end of this phrase, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people, thou hast covered all their sin. Understand that revival is not only deliverance from our own personal captivity, but it is also forgiveness from our sin and the covering by the blood of Jesus Christ of everything we had done. When we fall on our faces before God, whether here or in our rooms or, or out and around at the workplace, and God brings something to mind, and, and even maybe in your own heart, not literally, you fall on your face before God and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, He covers it. <laughs> That's revival. when it's all under the blood. Verse number 3. Thou hast taken away all thy what? Revival is the removal of the wrath of God. <laughs> there is wrath from God when we are in sin. And there's a removal of that wrath when we get right. And some Christians need to be reminded that when you got right with God, the wrath was taken away with it. And even though Satan wants you to be convinced that you're always under the wrath of God, no matter how far, or excuse me, uh, that you're always under the wrath of God, whether or not you have repented of it or not. When you've repented of it, the wrath is gone. Satan wants you believing that you'll always live under the wrath of God because it makes you feel helpless and hopeless. And if you're helpless and hopeless, you are also useless. But revival is not only deliverance from captivity. It's not only forgiveness and covering for our sin. It is a removal of the wrath of God that once did exist. But now, because we have not covered our sins but confessed and forsaken them, we have found mercy and there is no more need for wrath. So, pick yourself up and stop letting those thoughts and doubts and fears keep you in the muck and mire of something that doesn't exist anymore. Does God hate sin? Absolutely. Have you repented of it and forsaken it? Great. Then His wrath is gone. It's a removal of the wrath of God. 
Look at verse number 4. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause Thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt Thou be angry with us forever? Wilt Thou draw out Thine anger to all generations? Wilt Thou not revive us again? Do you see this? Now wait a minute. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But here is where I want to stop and look and take a big picture look of this passage of Scripture. Is everybody still with me? Look at verse number 1 again. Lord, Thou what? Hast been favorable. Look in the next part. Thou hast brought back the captivity. Do you see that? Verse number 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of Thy people. Look at, look at the middle part of verse number 2. Thou hast covered all their sin. Look at verse number 3. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. These are constants. They are definite statements of confidence. Are you with me? And they are present tense. Yes? In other words, deep down in the heart of the psalmist, he knows that God has been favorable that He has brought back the captivity, that He has forgiven the iniquity, that He has covered all of their sin, that He has taken away all of, their, all of His wrath, that He has turned Himself from the fierceness of His anger. He knows this. He's saying that God has done it. Yes? But then verse number 4 is a total different, totally different tone. He says, turn us. Verse number 5, he says, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again? He has gone from knowing that God has been generous, that God has been merciful, that God has forgiven, that God has covered, to that human doubting. Because he's gone from saying, God, I know you have done all these things for us, to saying, God, would you please do all these things for us? How many times have you come to the Lord and gotten something right with Him and still felt the weight of it? Because you still have the recent memory of all of the consequences that you had to live through. Because unfortunately, maybe in some cases, you are still living with some of the consequences that you had to go through. Or maybe you were just so far away from God for so long. Or maybe it's a sin that was so deep and so hard for you to get over that when you got over it, you had a hard time believing that God was over it. And so the first half of this passage, the first three verses, he speaks with confidence. The last few verses, he pleads for mercy. He basically says, Lord, I know you've been good. I know you've been merciful. I know you've covered all of my sin. And then he says, now would you please turn us? Would you please not be angry with us forever? Now wait a minute. Didn't he just say that God had been favorable? Didn't he just say God had forgiven? Didn't he say that he had covered all their sin? Didn't he say that he had taken away all of his wrath? Didn't he say that? And then he says, but are you going to be angry with us forever? Well, he just said, 
Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. In one place he's saying, Lord, I am so thankful that I don't have to deal with your wrath anymore. In the next place, his humanity comes out and says, now how much longer am I going to have to deal with your anger? And that's where verse number 6 comes in. And we'll be done. Wilt thou not revive us again? That thy people may what? Rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord. And grant us thy salvation. Two things. The first appears in verse number 6. Revival is not only when God removes your captivity. It's not only when God forgives and covers your sin. It's not only when God takes away your wrath. But revival is when you allow God to restore your joy again. The last time we looked at this subject, we looked at the book of Hosea. And we saw how that revival was as much about God healing you when He had smitten you as it was about you getting right with Him. Yes? We saw that it was as much about God making you fruitful again when you had become unfruitful because of your sin. Does everybody remember that? But now we also see that revival is not only God restoring these things to you, but it's also a return to joy again. And can I say that when God delivers you from your sin, when He covers up all of your sin, when He delivers you from captivity, when He has taken away all of His wrath, His design and desire is for you to be able to live a joy-filled life again. And that is as much a part of revival as anything else ever was. And so, if you are living still under the weight of your sin, under the weight of your mistakes, under the weight of your past, God wants you to live with a rejoicing heart once again and not live under the weight of all of that stuff anymore. And so, I would ask you to come to a loving God, a merciful God, and say, God, I've been dealing with the weight of this for so long. Will you please restore unto me the ability to rejoice again? Because He wants that to be a part of your life as much as any of the other was. And sometimes in our own questions and in our own doubts and our fears, we have a tendency to flip-flop and say, I, I know God forgives me, but I don't know if He wants to. I know God removes His wrath, but I can't tell if He's still angry. I know God has covered all of my sin, but I can't tell if I'm still going to have to deal with the consequences of it. And this duplicitous way of thinking, always up and down, not sure where you stand with God, will not allow you to get back to the rejoicing side of the Christian life. And I'm here to tell you that God doesn't want you to live there. He he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to get up, brush yourself off, and rejoice again. That's revival as much as anything else is. You ought to be able to walk in this life with a smile on your face as if nothing had ever happened because that's where He wants you. Rejoicing. And look at verse number 7. Show us Thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us Thy salvation.
Revival is God restoring your joy. And maybe every now and then, when you're having a hard time with it, it's okay to plead for a show of mercy and say, God, I'm struggling to get over this. Would you please show me a sign that everything's okay between us? And you know, sometimes it's just a little thing that's just between you and God. And it may not mean anything to anybody else, but you know He did it. Might be a little answer to prayer. It might be an extra pop that comes out of the vending machine when you put 50 cents in and two came out. <laughs> we have a merciful God who is willing to show us everything's okay. He wants you to know it that bad. What is revival? Yeah, it's God removing us from our captivity. It's God forgiving us and covering all of our sin. It's God removing His wrath from our life. But it's also God restoring joy again. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that You would please help those who need help tonight. Would You please speak as only You can. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, how many would say, Preacher, if I were to 